let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you, Marilyn, for reading that uh, powerful passage for us. The people of Athens spent all of their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Luke describes the writer of Acts, and he's sort of frowning on what appears to be an infatuation with newness, as if newness is the greatest virtue. And, and maybe it speaks a little bit also to their deep satisfaction, dissatisfaction with all that they have heard so far in their seeking for the meaning of life and the purpose of our existence. Maybe there was a kind of persistent emptiness that caused them to continually seek something new that would answer the questions they had about life. That's happening here in Athens in the passage that we just looked at, but also there's something good going on as well, and that's that these people are open to new ideas, and that's something we would celebrate. They like to discuss and to debate and to think, and, you know, we need a little more of that sometimes in our world right now, a little bit of healthy dialogue in what seems to be so often an angry and partisan world. And so it's kind of in that spirit of dialogue and discussion, of openness to new ideas, that I want to take some time to look at this remarkable speech, this remarkable lecture by Paul, as they invite him to the Areopagus, which was really the center in Athens of intellectual and religious thought. So it was a powerful invitation when they invited him to come and share his teaching with them. And in that lecture that Paul gives, the one that we've just heard, um, it's thick, there's a lot there, but what he does is he expounds some of the central, essential features of the Christian faith. And over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at those. Um, I've got six of them to look at, uh, a couple of observations that he makes, and then four different statements, declarations. So we'll do three of them this week and, and three of them next week. And I know that as we enter into this conversation, uh, there's a great deal of angst right now as we think about American Christianity. In fact, there's an intense focus on it at times right now. The culture wars are raging and they're taking on all kinds of new twists as we navigate the pandemic. And we also know that uh, in, in the past, horrible things have been done under the name of Christianity. In fact, in the last weeks, we recently explored in a four-part series um, racism in the church and even going through the history of the church uh, as it pertains to racism. And so we know that we could do uh, that kind of conversation in, in that area and many other areas. But I would also submit it's not entirely accurate to talk only of the negative and not at all of the positive contributions of Christianity in the world. For example, it's hard to think of human rights or equality or the development even of the scientific method, which we rely on so much in our day, or the civil rights movement, which was birthed in the church, or amazing institutions that we cherish but oftentimes take for granted, such as the Red Cross or the Salvation Army. We love these things. We're grateful for these aspects of our world, of our culture. And all these are hard to think about 
apart from the influence of biblical Christianity in the world. There's something that's greater than our contentious moment here at work. And Paul really puts his finger on it in this lecture at the Areopagus. And that's what we want to explore. It masterfully articulates the essence of what it is that's different and significant, even for us at a time like this. So with a sense of openness, and, and maybe, maybe some of us feel a little bit like some of those people in Athens who were always wanting something new. Why did they want something new? Because what they'd heard so far hadn't touched ground. It hadn't reached the depths of their soul. Maybe some of us are in a similar place. And so with that sense of openness and an understanding of the deep human existential need that we all have, we're going to spend a few moments opening and looking at some of the key statements and observations that Paul makes. As I said already, I've got just three for this week, so we're going to keep it manageable, and then we'll do three more next Sunday. And I hope you will really be able to join us because um, they go together. We, we need all uh, two of the observations and four of the declarations that Paul makes to be able to understand what uh, his, his overarching point is. So let's begin, though, and the first one that I want to pull out is this observation that Paul makes as he's in Athens there. He says, I perceive that in every way you, Athenians, are very religious. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. As Paul walked around Athens, he noted the presence of idols on every corner, it seems. He says it was full of idols. One commentator suggests the translation could be that it was smothered. Athens was smothered in idols. Now, an idol then was typically a statue. It could even just be a very small statue. There were also altars around. They were made of gold or silver or stone, and they represented a god of some kind. The Athenians were polytheistic. They believed in many different gods. They put their trust in many different gods. Some were well-known, would have been understood all throughout the Roman Empire, and some would have been unique to that particular locality. Each supposedly having, though, its own unique power and giftedness. And so it's right when Paul says that I perceive you are in every way very religious. They were a very religious people. Now, it's popular to believe that we moderns have sort of left that religiosity behind and moved on to something else. We have a, now a clear conception of the world and we've rid ourselves of the myths that so long prevailed and that we stand now in a kind of stark reality, more aware than people at any other time in history of the way things really are. We're not clouded with with religiosity and, and myths. But actually, we too are quite a religious people. By that I mean we exercise faith in all kinds of ways. We haven't mastered the workings of the world, and yet we have to somehow live in this world. This world that we haven't mastered, we have to live in it, we have to move through it, and we have to make real decisions that have real repercussions in this world. And all that living that we do in this world requires us to trust in some sort of frameworks of understanding that are also filled, they're inherently filled with the kind of mystery. So 
we could pick so many different examples, but from the scientific realm, how do you explain, for example, dark matter? We keep discovering things as, as we pursue understanding that we can't figure out. There's mystery to it. Or, or even in this moment, the sudden appearance of this pandemic and the way it flows, we're grappling, we're wrestling to try to understand there's so much mystery, and yet we've got to make decisions on how we go forward. And so many of those decisions have to be faith-oriented decisions. Now, they're reasonable faith, but they're faith-oriented decisions because there's so much that we can't know. Or what about in the realm of relationships? How do you explain love? How do you explain love? Or food. You know, recently I was turned on to a health podcast, and I went on to it and listened to one particular uh, talk, and this was all about something like oils, and, and the person who was speaking was very impassioned and excited and believed that what they were saying was revolutionary and transformational with respect to our human diet, uh, even making connections between the, the, the rates of, of, of sickness around the world and the different diets that we had. And I was inspired and I went home and I, I thought, okay, I'm going to avoid these particular things that this person is warning against. So I went into my pantry and pulled out some crackers that I love and I looked at the ingredients and of course it had all the evil ingredients in it. And I thought to myself, I can't ever, you know, who put this evil poison into my house, Right. Just a day before, I would have been eating those crackers, you know, one after the other. But now, it was this evil poison in my house. And, and I was seeing behind it, you know, the corporations and the evil conglomerates that, that want to ruin my health. And, and so, of course, we have to toss out the crackers. It, crackers. It's, it's unbelievable to me that after all this time of study and research and experimentation, we still really don't know what we're supposed to eat. In many respects, eating itself is an act of faith. Are we going to stop eating until we completely understand all the ins and outs of what is healthy and what isn't healthy for us? Well, we'd starve, right? And that's the question we're faced with in life so much of the time. We've got to navigate this world. We've got to move forward. We've got to make real decisions based on frameworks that call us to believe, to have faith. The philosopher Charles Taylor, who is somebody who's widely read um, within, um, within Christian circles and then within skeptical circles and within the academy, um, he makes this important point that the modern Western secular mindset set is not so much about the subtraction of all the religious bits we've now proven to be false as it is the replacement of it with a new system, the one that's coherent on many levels, but also requires us to exercise a great deal of faith. Even our modern secular mindset is very religious, in a sense. Here's the bottom line. All people are religious, just like, like Paul observed in Athens. I see that you are a religious people, in the sense that we all put our faith in something that cannot ultimately be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt as the only viable option. And I would say that intellectual humility requires us to acknowledge that simple fact that all of us, all human beings, navigate this world with a great deal of faith. And we ought to approach the pursuit of understanding accordingly. In other words, as modern people, we ought not to assume that we are living based on fact and reason. 
And all those crazy religious people from the past and some still today are acting on, on blind faith. It's, it's not so simple as that. It's not so divergent as that. All people are religious to some degree. All people exercise faith in a God or in an ideology or a system that we have chosen to receive. And the choosing of our God, whatever it is, whichever one of those it is, is an act of faith. And so the question isn't so much if we will live by faith. Uh, that's somewhat of a given. The question is, which faith will we live by? Which faith will we live by? What we'd want, of course, is to live by the one that most accurately describes the phenomena of the world around us. And that's the journey of discovery and debate and dialogue and discussion that we're on. What, what describes all the facets of the world in which we live? Second thing that Paul says is, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Now, Paul observes that these idols in Athens uh, are all over the place. And for him, it's a sad thing to see. You could, you could see in the passage just before the one that we read, we read that he's provoked in his spirit by the observation of all of these idols. And the reason that it saddens him is because it, it portrays an approach to God that misses a really important facet, a really important point. Uh, these, uh, the, the people of Athens are busy sculpting and chiseling and casting small statues that they, they seemingly endlessly fuss over and defend and protect. In other words, the gods that they worship are gods that they create. And this is getting into the point that Paul wants to make, which means that they're inherently made after their own image. Gods made after the image of the people who make them. That's what we have in Athens. They're made according to their own wishes and their wants and their desires. And, and moving forward to the modern era, to our time, you know, we don't make idols in the same way. We don't fashion them out of stone and metals. Um, we don't chisel and, and cast and sculpt them. But we do make ideologies and we do create belief systems that we fashion, that we sculpt and we chisel and we cast to reinforce oftentimes our own desires and longings and wishes regarding the way that the world ought to be. So naturalism, for example, naturalism could be viewed in this way. Naturalism is the belief that there's, there's no spiritual component to creation. Uh, what you see is... What there is, period. There's nothing beyond it. There's no spiritual activity behind what we see in this world. And it's a, it's a common belief that goes with our modern secular humanism, um, naturalism is. Um, and first, we have to acknowledge that, um, that belief in naturalism is a belief. Because there's no way to prove that, in fact, there's no spiritual realm. So there we are in, in the realm of faith again. And there's certainly many things in this world that are hard to explain apart from the existence of the spiritual realm. In my own journey, I remember a time where I 
sought to embrace uh, a naturalistic perspective. And what kept happen happening to me is I kept seeing things that I couldn't explain, things that happen in this, this world, that happen to people, that happen in the context of relationships, that I couldn't explain without the, the acknowledgement that there's something spiritual going on in this world. And so, so naturalism failed to capture uh, the data, in a sense, of the world in which I inhabit. So we have to understand that naturalism is itself a belief. Uh, and then second, it, it, it can be that in some cases, maybe not in every case, but in some cases, it suits a person well to be freed from having to think about the spiritual realm. And this may be the case, this may be true for the wealthy, um, privileged Westerners, of which many of us and most of us are a part, who, uh, relatively speaking, are doing just fine with the way things are in this physical world. You see that dynamic? If the physical world is working out for you, okay, then why would you want to kind of look under the covers and see what's happening in the spiritual realm? It's convenient in some cases not to have to grapple with the spiritual truths that might call a person to a higher standard, reveal inconsistencies that would be uncomfortable to face. And so naturalism can become, in those respects, a kind of excuse for not dealing with the spiritual realm, with the spiritual aspects of life, uh, because we're, we're doing just fine the way we are. Now, what Paul's saying, which is in stark contrast to that, is, is that God, on the other hand, is not a thing you create, whether it be fashioning an idol out of silver or gold or chiseling an idol out of stone or creating an ideology or a worldview that reinforces what you we fashion our gods according to our own desires and our own wants and our own wishes and what paul's he's coming at this from a completely different angle he's saying god is not a thing you create whether it be statue or ideology god is a being you discover god is a being you discover and as such, he can't be domesticated. He can't be limited. He can't be otherwise fashioned to serve our purposes. See, God comes first. This is what he's saying so powerfully in verses 24 through 25. I'll, I'll read those again for us. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. See, he's not fashioned by us, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need us to protect him, to create him, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, quite the reverse, that God is the, the first, the starter, the initiator. See, the God that Paul describes is more grand and more wonderful than anything that we could create on our own. See, if we create God, then we're limited to what we know and what we understand. This is hugely hopeful for me as a, as, as a person to know that there's something greater than that can help to explain and give meaning and purpose to the world in which I'm trying to exist. But of course, there's implications with that that are significant as well. This God can't be limited or defined by us. So we've got to approach this God with a different kind of a posture. We don't get to 
approach this God like we do our favorite buffet. You remember what a buffet was when you used to go to a restaurant and you could just eat all the food that you want? You'd pick the things that you like and you wouldn't eat the things you didn't like. You get to choose, right? You get to create a plate that's filled with only the things you love. Well, if God really exists, you don't get to do that with God. You don't get to pick and choose because God is greater than you have to. You're the one who has to conform to who God is if God really exists in all of this grandeur and might and greatness. And so approaching a God who is bigger than us requires us to, to take on that kind of posture. It's a posture of humility, and humility is such a wonderful virtue. I love it. It's so painful at first because it means we have to shed things that we've been attached to, actually things we've idolized usually. We have to shed those things, and then we have to come as a blank slate to receive. And approaching a holy God, an awesome God, a powerful God, the kind of God that Paul is talking about, requires us to take a posture of humility and to receive, to, to say, you know, just maybe I don't, I don't understand how it should be. And so if there are things about this God that rub me the wrong way, that are contrary to what I would have expected, that I kind of wished I wouldn't have to deal with, then maybe it's me who has to change. Maybe it's me who has to, to take that humble posture and, and submit to who God is. We ought to think of approaching God less like the way that we think of approaching an idea where, where we discern and we evaluate and we critique and more like the way we think of approaching a person, okay? where we, we learn and over time we start to know more and more and we become familiar with and, and in that you know, depending on how that relationship goes on the human level, because people sin against each other and undermine trust, but on the divine level, it's a little bit different. As that, as that relationship grows, what happens is trust grows. And think of your good, the healthy human relationships that you have. What's going on so often in those relationships is that, is that trust is growing as you get to know one another and Prove yourself faithful to one another. And, and this is more like the process that we encounter when we think about coming to know God. Um, it's not simply evaluating an idea, but it's getting to know a person. I, I've had the opportunity over my time in, in ministry and even before that to talk to many people who would consider th themselves to be atheists. And I'm surprised at how many times I've heard this story um, or this anecdote, you know, when we really get down to it, the person will say something like, um, you know, I actually would love to believe. I'd love to believe. When I was little, when I was younger, I wanted there to be a God and, and I prayed. And I felt like my prayer wasn't answered. I, I felt like there was... There was nobody out there. And that little moment, significant, poignant, pregnant moment, caused this person to go on a trajectory away from God. Um, and sometimes that vector can continue on for years and, and decades and even 
most of a lifetime. And some of you might be in that place this morning. You, deep down, you would love to have a relationship with God, but in previous attempts, you have, you have felt that something has come up short. And my invitation for you this morning, th- this is my invitation to myself as well, is to return back to the possibility of relationship with God. Um, to try again to build that trust, to, to, to remove relationship with God out of the category of, is this an idea I can prove or disprove, to is this a person I can come to know and trust? Because if God exists and God is living, then it's going to be a lot more like that than like this side, merely just simply an idea. So I want to invite you on that journey. And that really leads us to the next thing that Paul says, the next point I want to call out. Paul makes this amazing statement in his lecture at the Areopagus. He says of God, he is actually not far from each one of us. He is actually not far from each one of us. Paul says that the purpose of life, of this is an amazing insight, I, I think. The purpose of life, just all the ins and outs. He, he says the nations and all their different regions and their cultures and their, their places, their histories, all the way they're spread across the earth. He says the ebbs and flows of history, the ups and downs the backwards, the forwards, the the personal traumas that human beings have experienced, the the struggles of existence, the pandemics, all of it, all of it, he says, is meant to cause us to seek God so that we might know him. All of it, that's what it's for. That's why the world is the way that it is, Paul says, so that we might seek to know, to have a relationship with God. All this buffeting that we experience in life is to cause us to get to the point where we reach out, cry out, seek out God. And this makes a great deal of sense if you think about what is most important to human beings. Nearly all people, perhaps you could say all people, wherever they live across this earth or in whatever culture they find themselves, will say that the most important thing to them is what? Their friends and their family, their relationships. Relationship is the greatest thing this world has to offer. And that is a clue to the meaning and the purpose of our existence. And if relationship with other human beings is so wonderful, and we're all experiencing the tension of missing that relationship right now because of the pandemic, it's, it's been constrained to these, these digital um, uh, airwaves. And so we've got to, we've got to, and, and we're just struggling. And if you've had moments where you've actually been with other people in, in person again, you, you, it's so refreshing. You think, oh, I miss this. Why? Because we're made for relationship. It's the very heart of the world that we inhabit. It's, it's the very essence of what it means 
to be human. And if relationships between people are so important, what must be the importance of relationship with God? And so everything in history, all that's happened, the ebbs and the flows, the backwards and the forwards, the craziness, the struggles, the pandemics, it's all meant to drive us, to lead us, to cause us to seek relationship with God. Deep down, this is what we most long for. And so when Paul says these words, they're so powerful. He is actually not far from each one of us. We often feel that God is far. I know that. I feel that. We're going to talk about this next week, but there's a reason for that. It's the presence of sin in the world. Sin has splintered our relationship with God. And, and if you're somebody who hates to talk about sin, I especially want to invite you to join us next Sunday because we're going to dig into it. And I, I think we're going, to, we're going to understand the concept of sin from perhaps a different angle than, than maybe you've looked at it before. But suffice to say for now that, that sin is the reason that our relationship with God has been splintered and why it is that we feel this distance from God. And, and God is addressing the problem of sin and the problem really of the distance that we feel in two ways. He addresses it in the present time and then, and then God addresses it in the future. And next week we're going to talk about the way that God addresses that distance between us in the future. Um, but right now I want to just mention how God addresses it in the present time. And that is this, that God made the decision in ages past to actually take up residence among us, to, to come and be present with us. This is why Paul can say he's actually not far off. Because God has made himself present with us. That's who Jesus is. Um, the name, one of the things we call Jesus right there in the beginning when he first comes on the scene is Emmanuel. God with us. So yes, there's that distance. But God's in process of drawing near to us. And he does it in the person of Jesus. And I understand that the, that, that the idea that, that Jesus is God is seemingly incredible and fantastical and difficult for us to embrace. I, I, I get that. I have mornings when I wake up and I go, wow, that's amazing. Do I really believe that? Here's what helps me understand how something so fantastic could in fact be a reality. Um, first of all, it's the relationship dynamic, that God would do this to be in relationship. Relationship is really at the core of all that we experience in this world that we inhabit. And then the second thing is to acknowledge that God's presence among us has to take some sort of form. If God's to, 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 draw, to draw near to us, um, it, he's got to do it in some way. If God's going to overcome that gap, that distance between us, there has to be some mechanism. And what better mechanism than for God to inhabit our, our, the very same form of our existence 
in humanity, to, to be close to us? What, what signals relationship more powerfully than when we identify with somebody, right? When you take up presence with somebody else to do the things they love, to be in the, the, the habitat that they exist, to, to, to just spend time there. And God does that in the person of Jesus Christ. For me, when I, when I, when I think of Jesus being God, which is so amazing and, and fantastic, but when I think of, of the purpose behind it, it, it starts to make sense that of course God would do a thing like this if God exists. To come near. It, it has the attributes, the, the qualities, the virtues of God, all fingerprints of God all over it. That God would do a thing like this. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about the spirit of God. When Jesus walked the earth and then went to the cross to die an atoning death there to take care of sin, which we're going to dive into a little bit more next week. When Jesus did all that, then he died and, and, and was raised from the dead. And, and we're going to talk about that, too, um, and, and went to heaven. And, but before, he, he, he gave us his spirit. And the spirit of God is the presence of God in our midst. And so God is still with us. God is still with us. And you can pray and you can ask and you can invite and you can seek the presence of God in your life because by his spirit, he is with us. Now, the reason that Paul ended, and I'm finishing with this last thought, the reason that Paul ended up in the Areopagus is because those who initially heard him wanted to hear more. They wanted to know more. And it's an acknowledgement that, that the process of exploring, of understanding, of changing one's mind, of developing relationship, it takes, it takes time. And the search for God is, is really about developing a relationship that involves trust. And trust isn't something that just happens overnight. It happens in progression, in process. And so for all of us who are in the process of considering or developing a relationship with God, a relationship of trust, of faith, we've got to allow for that space and that time. When we, when we were living many years ago in Pennsylvania, we went down to the river, the Susquehanna River, right there in Harrisburg, and we were crossing over the uh, metal graded bridge to City Island. And my daughter, who was very young, just, just walking and, and learning to run and jump, we, we stepped onto the bridge and she looked through the metal grate at the rushing river beneath and she was paralyzed. She didn't know that the grate would hold her up against the flow of the water underneath. And so we kept walking and she just stopped, toes hanging over the grate, just waited. And we turned around and we grabbed her hand and we started to walk with her across the bridge. And, and she initially took steps with great hesitation 
But you know what happened is after just a few moments, she began to develop confidence in this bridge, the metal grate that kept her up from the chasm below. And before long, she's walking freely. And shortly after that, she's running on the bridge. Why? Because she trusts it. And then eventually she's jumping on the bridge. Why? Because she trusts the bridge. And the process of relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ is very much like that process of learning to trust the bridge. And confident grow, confidence grows over time. I'll show you a picture of my daughter that was taken this, I think it was last year. Here she is at Taft Point. She's 3,500 feet above the valley floor on a slack line. Confidence grows over time. And that's the pathway that we're on together in our journey towards God. And it's so much richer when we get to do it together. We get to learn about and know and understand the God about which Paul speaks in the context of community. So would you continue to join us? Join us again next Sunday because we're going to talk about some of these crucially important dynamics related to faith.